0: Chapter Seventeen, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry-Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen: The Polar Journey, The Pole and After, Part Two. Owing to the rapid changes in surfaces, on one occasion they depoted their ski because they were in a sea of sastrugi and had to walk back for them because the snow became level and soft again. Scott guessed that the coastal mountains could not be far away, and we now know that the actual distance was only one hundred and thirty miles. About the same time Scott mentions that he had been afraid that they were weakening in their pulling, but he was reassured by getting a patch of good surface, and finding the sledge coming as easily as of old. On the night of January 12th, eight days after leaving the last return party, he writes, "'At camping to-night, every one was chilled and we guessed a cold snap.' But to our surprise the actual temperature was higher than last night, when we could dawdle in the sun. It is most unaccountable why we should suddenly feel the cold in this manner. Partly the exhaustion of the march, but partly some damp quality in the air, I think. Little Bowers is wonderful. In spite of my protest, he would take sights, after we had camped to-night, after marching in the soft snow all day, when we have been comparatively restful on ski. On January 14th, Wilson wrote, a very cold grey thick day with a persistent breeze from the south southeast, which we all felt considerably but temperature was only minus eighteen degrees at lunch and minus fifteen degrees in the evening now just over forty miles from the pole scott wrote the same day again we noticed the cold at lunch to-day all our feet were cold but this was mainly due to the bald state of our finisco i put some grease under the bare skin and found it made all the difference Oat seems to be feeling the cold and fatigue more than the rest of us but we are all very fit and on january fifteenth lunch we are all pretty done at camping and wilson we made a depot the last depot of provisions at lunch time and went on for our last lap with nine days provision we went much more easily in the afternoon and on till seven thirty p m the surface was a funny mixture of smooth snow and sudden patches of sastrugi and we occasionally appear to be on a very gradual down gradient, and on a slope down from the west to east. In the light of what happened afterwards, I believe that the party was not as fit at this time as might have been expected ten days before, and that this was partly the reason why they felt the cold and found the pulling so hard. The immediate test was the bad surface, and this was the result of the crystals which covered the ground. Simpson has worked out that there is an almost constant pressure gradient driving the air on the plateau northward parallel to the 146 degree east meridian, and parallel also to the probable edge of the plateau. The mean velocity for the months of this December and January was about 11 miles an hour. During this plateau journey, Scott logged wind force 5 and over on 23 occasions, and this wind was in their faces from the Beardmore to the Pole, and at their backs as they returned. A low temperature when it is calm is paradise compared to a higher temperature with the wind, and it is this constant pitiless wind, combined with the altitude and low temperatures, which has made travelling on the Antarctic Plateau so difficult. While the mean velocity of wind during the two midsummer months seemed to be fairly constant, there is a very rapid fall of temperature in January. The mean actual temperature found on the Plateau this year in December was minus 8.6 degrees, the minimum observed being minus 19.3 degrees. Simpson remarks that, It must be accounted as one of the wonders of the Antarctic that it contains a vast area of the Earth's surface where the mean temperature during the warmest month is more than 8 degrees below the Fahrenheit zero and when throughout the month the highest temperature was only plus 5.5 degrees F. But the mean temperature on the plateau dropped 10 degrees in January to minus 18.7 degrees, the minimum observed being minus 29.7 degrees. These temperatures have to be combined with the wind force described above, to imagine the conditions of the march. In the light of Scott's previous plateau journey, and Shackleton's polar journey, this wind was always expected by our advance parties, but there can be no doubt that the temperature falls as solar radiation decreases more rapidly than was generally supposed. Scott probably expected neither such a rapid fall of temperature, nor the very bad surfaces, though he knew that the plateau would mean a trying time, and indeed it was supposed that it would be much the hardest part of the journey. On the night of January fifteenth, Scott wrote, It ought to be a certain thing now, and the only appalling possibility, the sight of the Norwegian flag, forestalling ours. They were twenty-seven miles from the pole. The story of the next three days is taken from Wilson's diary. January sixteenth, we got away at eight a m and made seven point five miles by one fifteen, lunched, and then in five point three miles came on a black flag and the Norwegian sledge-ski and dog-tracks running about north-east and south-west both ways. The flag was of black bunting, tied with string to a fore-and-after, which had evidently been taken off a finished-up sledge. The age of the tracks was hard to guess but probably a couple of weeks, or three or more. The flag was fairly well frayed at the edges. We camped here and examined the tracks and discussed things. The surface was fairly good in the forenoon, minus 23 degrees temperature, and all the afternoon, we were coming downhill with again a rise to the west and a fall and scoop to the east, where the Norwegians came up evidently by another glacier, January seventeenth we camped on the pole itself at six thirty p m this evening in the morning. we were up at five a m and got away on Amundsen's tracks going south-southwest for three hours, passing two small snow cairns and then finding the tracks too much snowed up to follow, we made our own bee-line for the pole camped for lunch at twelve-thirty, and off again from three to six-thirty p.m. It blew from force four to six all day in our teeth, with temperature minus twenty-two degrees, the coldest March I ever remember. It was difficult to keep one's hands from freezing in double-woollen and fur mitts. Oates, Evans, and Bowers all have pretty severe frostbitten noses and cheeks, and we had to camp early for lunch on account of Evans' hands. It was a very bitter day. Sun was out now and again, and observations taken at lunch, and before and after supper, and at night at 7 p.m., and at 2 a.m. by our time. The weather was not clear. The air was full of crystals driving towards us as we came south, and making the horizon grey and thick and hazy. We could see no sign of cairn or flag, and from Amundsen's direction of tracks this morning he has probably hit a point about three miles off. We hope for clear weather tomorrow but in any case we are all agreed that he can claim prior right to the pole itself. He has beaten us in so far as he made a race of it. We have done what we came for all the same, and as our programme was made out. From his tracks we think there were only two men on ski, with plenty of dogs on rather low diet. They seem to have had an oval tent. We sleep one night at the pole, and have had a double hoosh with some last bits of chocolate, and X's cigarettes have been much appreciated by Scott and Oates and Evans. A tiring day, now turning into a somewhat starchy frozen bag. Tomorrow we start for home, and shall do our utmost to get back in time to send the news to the ship. January 18th. Sights were taken in the night, and at about 5 a.m. we turned out and marched from this night camp about three and three-quarter miles back, in a southeasterly direction, to a spot which we judged from last night's sights to be the Pole. Here we lunched camp, built a cairn, took photos, flew the Queen Mother's Union Jack and all our own flags. We call this the Pole, though as a matter of fact we went half a mile further on in a southeasterly direction, after taking further sights to the actual final spot, and here we left the Union Jack flying. During the forenoon we passed the Norwegian's last southerly camp, they called it Polheim, and left here a small tent with Norwegian and Fram flags flying, and a considerable amount of gear in the tent, half-reindeer sleeping bags, sleeping socks, rainskin trousers two-pair, a sextant and artificial horizon, a hypsometer with all the thermometers broken, etc. I took away the spirit-lamp of it, which I have wanted for sterilising and making disinfectant lotions of snow. There were also letters there, one from Amundsen to King Hakon, with a request that Scott should send it to him. There was also a list of the five men who made up their party, but no news as to what they had done. I made some sketches here, but it was blowing very cold, minus 22 degrees. Birdie took some photos. We found no sledge there, though they said there was one. It may have been buried in a drift. The tent was a funny little thing for two men, pegged out with a white line and tent-pegs of yellow wood. I took some strips of blue-grey silk off the tent seams. It was perished. The Norskis had got to the Pole on December 16th, and were here from 15th to 17th. At our lunch South Pole camp we saw a sledge-runner with a black flag about a a half-mile away blowing from it. Scott sent me on ski to fetch it, and I found a note tied to it showing that this was the Norskis' actual final Pole position. I was given the flag and the note with Amundsen's signature, and I got a piece of the sledge-runner as well. The small chart of our wanderings shows best how all these things lie. After lunch we made 6.2 miles from the pole camp to the north again, and here we are camped for the night. The following remarks on the South Pole were written by Bowers in the meteorological log, apparently on January 17th and 18th. Within a 120 miles of the South Pole The Sastrugi crossed seemed to indicate belts of certain prevalent winds. These were definitely south-easterly, up to about latitude 78 degrees 30 minutes south, where the summit was passed and we started to go definitely downhill towards the pole. An indefinite area was then crossed, south-easterly, southerly and south-westerly Sastrugi. Later, in about 79 degrees 30 minutes south, those from the south south west predominated. At this point also, The surface of the ice cap became affected by undulations running more or less at right angles to our course. These resolved themselves into immense waves, some miles in extent, with a uniform surface both in hollow and crust. The whole surface was carpeted with a deposit of ice crystals, which, while we were there, fell sometimes in the form of minute spicules, and sometimes in plates. These caused an almost continuous display of parhelia the flags left a month previously by the norwegian expedition were practically undamaged and so could not have been exposed to a very heavy wind during that time their sledging and ski tracks where marked were raised slightly also the dogs footprints in the neighbourhood of their south pole camp the drifts were southwesterly but there was one south east drift to leeward of the tent they had pitched their tent to allow for southwesterly wind for walking on foot The ground was all pretty soft, and on digging down the crystalline structure of the snow was found to alter very little, and there were no layers of crust such as are found on the barrier. The snow seems so lightly put together as not to cohere, and makes very little water for its bulk when melted. The constant and varied motion of cirrus, and the forming and motion of radiant points, shows that in the upper atmosphere at this time of the year there is little or no tranquillity. That is the bare-bones of what was without any possible doubt a great shock. Consider, these men had been out two and a half months, and were eight hundred miles from home. The glacier had been a heavy grind, the plateau certainly not worse, probably better than was expected, as far as that place where the last return party left them, but then, in addition to a high altitude, a head-wind, and a temperature which averaged minus eighteen point seven degrees, came this shower of ice crystals turning the surface to sand especially when the sun was out. They were living in cirrus clouds, and the extraordinary state seems to have obtained that the surface of the snow was colder when the sun was shining than when clouds checked the radiations from it. They began to descend. Things began to go not quite right. They felt the cold, especially Oates and Evans. Evans' hands were also wrong, ever since the seamen made that new sledge. The making of that sledge must have been fiercely cold work one of the hardest jobs they did. I am not sure that enough notice has been taken of that. And then, the Norwegians have forestalled us, and are first at the Pole. It is a terrible disappointment, and I am very sorry for my loyal companions. Many thoughts come, and much discussion have we had. Tomorrow we must march on to the Pole, and then hasten home, with all the speed we can compass. All the day dreams must go. It will be a wearisome return." THE pole, YES, BUT UNDER VERY DIFFERENT CIRCUMSTANCES FROM THOSE EXPECTED, COMPANIONS LABOURING ON WITH COLD FEET AND HANDS, EVANS HAD SUCH COLD HANDS WE CAMPED FOR LUNCH, THE WIND IS BLOWING HARD, TEMPERATURE MINUS 21 DEGREES, AND THERE IS THAT CURIOUS DAMP COLD FEELING IN THE AIR, WHICH CHILLS ONE TO THE BONE IN NO TIME, GREAT GOD, THIS IS AN AWFUL PLACE. THIS IS NOT A CRY OF DESPAIR it is an ejaculation provoked by the ghastly facts even now in january the temperature near the south pole is about twenty four degrees lower than it is during the corresponding month of the year july near the north pole and if it is like this in midsummer what is it like in midwinter at the same time it was with the exception of the sandy surfaces what they had looked for and every detail of organisation was working out as well as if not better than had been expected Bowers was so busy with the meteorological log and sights which were taken in terribly difficult circumstances that he kept no diary until they started back. Then he wrote on seven consecutive days as follows. January 19th. A splendid clear morning, with a fine south-westerly wind blowing. During breakfast time I sold a flap attachment onto the hood of my green hat so as to prevent the wind from blowing down my neck on the march. We got up the mast and sail on the sledge and headed north picking up Amundsen's cairn and our outgoing track shortly afterwards. Along these we travelled till we struck the other cairn, and finally the black flag where we had made our fifty eighth outward camp. We then, with much relief, left all traces of the Norwegians behind us and headed on our own track till lunch camp, when we had covered eight miles. In the afternoon we passed number two cairn of the British route, and fairly slithered along before a fresh breeze. It was heavy travelling for me, not being on ski, but one does not mind being tired if a good march is made. We did sixteen miles altogether for the day, and so should pick up our last depot to-morrow afternoon. The weather became fairly thick soon after noon, and at the end of the afternoon there was considerable drift, with mist caused by ice-crystals and parhelion. January 20th Good sailing breeze again this morning. It is a great pleasure to have one's back to the wind, instead of having to face it it came on thicker later but we sighted the last depot soon after one p m and reached it at one forty five p m the red flag on the bamboo pole was blowing out merrily to welcome us back from the pole with its of necessaries of life below we are absolutely dependent upon our depots to get off the plateau alive and so welcome the lonely little cairns gladly at this one called the last depot we picked up four days food a can of oil some methylated spirits for lighting purposes and some personal gear we had left there the bamboo was bent on to the floor-cloth as a yard for our sail instead of a broken sledge-runner of amundsen's which we had found at the pole and made a temporary yard of as we had marched extra long in the forenoon in order to reach the depot our afternoon march was shorter than usual the wind increased to a moderate gale with heavy gusts and considerable drift we should have had a bad time had we been facing it after an hour i had to shift my harness aft so as to control the motions of the sledge. Unfortunately the surface got very sandy latterly, but we finished up with 16.1 miles to our credit, and camped in a stiff breeze, which resolved itself into a blizzard a few hours later. I was glad we had our depot safe. January twenty-first, Wind increased to Force 8 during the night with a heavy drift. In the morning it was blizzing like blazes, and marching was out of the question. The wind would have been a great assistance to us, but the drift was so thick that steering a course would have been next to impossible. We decided to await developments, and get under way as soon as it showed any signs of clearing. Fortunately, it was short-lived, and instead of lasting the regulation two days, it eased up in the afternoon, and 3.45 found us off with our sail full. It was good running on ski, but soft plodding for me on foot. I shall be jolly glad to pick up my dear old ski. They are nearly two hundred miles away yet, however. The breeze fell altogether latterly, and I shifted up into my old place as middle number of the five. Our distance completed was 5.5 miles, when camp was made again. Our old cairns are of great assistance to us, also the tracks, which are obliterated in places by heavy drift and hard sastrugi, but can be followed easily. January 22nd. We came across Evan Sheepskin Boots this morning, They were almost covered up after their long spell, since they fell off the sledge on January 11th. The breeze was fair from the south-southwest, but got lighter and lighter. At lunch camp we had completed 8.2 miles. In the afternoon the breeze fell altogether, and the surface, acted on by the sun, became perfect sawdust. The light sledge pulled by five men came along like a drag, without a particle of slide or give. We were all glad to camp soon after 7 p.m. I think we were all pretty tired out. We did altogether 19.5 miles for the day. We are only 30 miles from the 1.5 degree depot, and should reach it in two marches with any luck. The minimum temperature this night was minus 30 degrees, uncorrected. End of chapter 17, part 2